I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about a well-known American author and uh, a day, a holiday now, that is not as well-known, but is becoming more a part of the American consciousness. And the author, of course, is Ralph Ellison. And his book, if that's what we're going to call it, uh, we'll find out from Lucas Morell if that's what we should call it. But his book, and of course, the day, is Juneteenth. So I want to welcome all of you to this episode. Thanks to Lucas Morell for joining us. Lucas is the head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University. He is an old friend of the Ashbrook Center and of mine. Delighted to have him with us. He is a terrific teacher, teaches in Ashbrook's Master of Arts in American History and Government program, teaches in our Teaching American History seminars, and uh, does a lot of teaching, of course, at his home institution. So Lucas is very busy as a teacher. He is also tremendously productive as a scholar, has a wonderful recent book on Abraham Lincoln and the founding, also has a collection of essays and a book on Ralph Ellison. So um, we're talking to the right person today about this important American author and this very interesting topic. Lucas Morrell, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, Juneteenth. It's the title of a book, if that's, again, if that's what we want to call it, um, but it's, a, it's the title of a book, a posthumous book by the great American author, Ralph Ellison. It's also, as I said, a holiday that folks are beginning to, to um, consider a holiday in America. Tell us just about first Juneteenth, the historical event or fact that gave rise to not only the holiday, but of course, is the title for Ellison's book. Yeah, Juneteenth is a combination of two words, June and 19th. Well, a particular June 19th, 1865, was the day that a Union general, Major General Gordon Granger, uh, entered Galveston, Texas. Uh, He actually got there June 18th, and on June 19th, he made a declaration. It was actually a military order, General Orders Number 3, And the four key words are, all slaves are free. And he said all slaves were free because he was essentially announcing what Lincoln had done on January 1st, 1863. So over two years earlier, he was announcing to the population of Texas in Galveston Bay uh, that the enslaved were no longer slaves and that the Union Army and Navy were going to protect them in their freedom. And he essentially paraphrased the Emancipation Proclamation in his General Orders Number 3. So June 19, 1865, 
a year after that, Black Americans in Texas and then increasingly in other states uh, began celebrating that day as the day of their liberation, as the day of emancipation, even though emancipation technically and formally was uh, declared uh, in rebel territory um, to apply to rebel territory on January 1st, 1863. So were there um, important black leaders, I'm thinking of someone like Frederick Douglass or others, who at the time thought, yeah, we should be uh, celebrating Juneteenth and they helped promote this? Or was this more of an a sort of uh, grassroots effort that just bubbled up? It was one of those situations where it was not from any elite class or leaders, self-appointed or otherwise. It really was a grassroots, uh, grassroots effort. Uh, it's a great question to ask because um, one of the struggles amongst the black population of the United States was exactly how do we commemorate our liberation? Because in so doing, we have to remind ourselves every year that we were once enslaved. Now, not all black Americans were enslaved, but most were tragically uh, in our history until the Civil War and ultimately until the 13th Amendment was ratified in December of 1865. So in fact, June 19th, what was settled as the day that they would use to commemorate their liberation was one of several dates, obvious one being January 1st, 1863. But what about September 22nd, 1862, when Lincoln announced 100 days ahead, he would emancipate slaves in areas that were still in rebellion? What about April 16th, when slavery was banned in the District of Columbia? Uh, what about June 19th, 1862, not 65, but June 19th, 1862, when Congress in a simple sentence said, slavery is no longer permitted throughout federal territories. And Lincoln signed that law, that, uh, that bill with relish, even though Dred Scott, that notorious case of 1857, which said Congress can't do that, uh, in spite of that court case, that court ruling, which was still on the books, Congress and Lincoln disagreed and said, we do think we have this authority and we're going to exercise it now. So this was a debate that was happening, if you will, amongst the grassroots of black America about how to commemorate their liberation, how to commemorate their freedom in the United States, what is the appropriate date to do that? And uh, over the years, it has come to settle on June 19th, Juneteenth. Uh, fa fascinating. Um, how does it? How does Juneteenth enter the consciousness and the literary consciousness of an author like Ralph Ellison? And, and again, most of our listeners, of course, have heard of Ralph Ellison, but for those who haven't or don't know him quite as well, remind us of who he is and why he's so important. Yeah, Ralph Ellison is a Black American author who uh, came on the scene almost miraculously with the publication of his first book, Invisible Man um, in um, 1952. The following year, it became the first, he became the first Black author to be awarded the National Book Award. Uh, and if uh, Invisible Man deals with the subject of uh, the search for identity, right? He's an invisible man, the protagonist is. Juneteenth, this posthumously published novel in 1999, which was a portion of a grander uh, magnum op uh, opus that Ellison was working on decades after Invisible Man. But that, that central portion that we know as and was published as Juneteenth, that novel was published in 1999, 
uh, several years after uh, Ralph Ellison's death. Uh, Juneteenth for Ralph Ellison uh, focused on the evasion of identity. Uh, there is a protagonist in that novel uh, named uh, Bliss. He uh, comes to identify himself as a senator by the name of Adam Sunraider. It's a long story as to how that comes about. But the long and short of it is here is a black youth who grows up to pass for white and becomes, of all things, a race-baiting New England senator. And if that doesn't intrigue you enough to want to jump into that novel, I don't know what will. And so it was actually the literary executor, a man named John Callahan, who is a professor emeritus from Lewis and Clark College. Um, he, uh, uh, with the help of, of uh, Ralph Ellison's widow, Fanny Ellison, he gathered together these boxes uh, and computer files of this unpublished novel. And Fanny asked him one question. She said, John, is there a beginning, middle, and end to this thing? John tried to make this unwieldy, you know, over 1,000-page manuscript into one. And it turned out it was actually three kind of knitted together, kind of not, kind of formed, kind of not uh, novel. And he thought that the, 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 the most fully shaped and matured and complete portion was this central portion that he initially published, uh, and he chose the title Juneteenth. It's also the focus of one of the key chapters in Juneteenth. And I should hasten to add that they eventually published the compendium of all these pages and computer files as three days before the shooting. And the shooting has to do with an attempted assassination of Adam Sunraider. Uh, so why Juneteenth? Uh, in a nutshell, uh, Ralph Ellison sees America's political development, America's social development as um, a development by fits and starts. Uh, the American way of political life, if you will, is two steps forward, one step back. Hearkening back to Juneteenth, right, where enslaved Black Americans in Texas first learned in June of 65 that they had been freed in January of 63. In a way, that is the American way that there are things that we say are true, but they become a reality, if you will, over time. So, so in the, the story itself of Juneteenth, you say, um, tell us, uh, folks who may not have read the book yet, and of course, we strongly recommend that they do, ter terrific and interesting and, and, as you say, complex um, book. Tell us the, the story of the book. Uh, the plot in, in, in the germ is uh, this fellow I've already mentioned, Adam Sunraider, um, he is an orphaned um, uh, child of a couple that was not married, and he basically lands on the lap of this preacher, a black man in the South named Alonzo Hickman. And Hickman names the baby Bliss. Uh, Bliss, of course, conjures up a number of things, some pleasant and some not so pleasant, right? When, when I think of Bliss, I think of the adage, ignorance is Bliss. Uh, well, the story, what develops the story is this kid is basically being groomed to be Alonzo Hickman. Hickman is raising a preacher like himself. And the kid learns how to use rhetoric, how to use persuasion to preach the, from the good book, the Bible. But he also looks around himself and notices that black people aren't treated very well by white people. And there is a pivotal chapter in the book, trying to avoid spoiling anything, but there's a pivotal chapter in the book that involves a circus. And it's a riff actually on the central chapter of Huck Finn that also is a circus scene. 
Uh, Ellison is a deeply well-versed in not just world literature, but American literature, and he loved Twain. But anyway, as a result of watching what happens to a particular um, character in this circus, a clown, uh, Bliss decides that his future, if it's going to be a successful and happy one, is not by following in the footsteps of his adopted father, uh, Alonzo Hickman, who is a black man. If he can pass for white, that's the key to his future. That's the key to power in America. And I think that's enough to give you some idea of, of uh, the, the tensions and the flavor of this novel. The novel opens in the future where Alonzo Hickman and several members of his Southern black congregation take a trip to Washington, DC to watch Bliss, who is now this Senator from New England, but a race baiting passing for white senator to watch him in action. And they're actually present in the opening chapters of this uh, novel. They're actually present when Hickman, excuse me, when Sun Raider is shot from the gallery. Huh, fascinating. So um, this book, uh, as you know, when, when, um, I'm, when Invisible Man came out in 1952, it made a had a tremendous effect, as you said. Next year, Ellison wins the National Book Award, first time for an African American author in the United States. Yes. Um, it also had its share of critics, including and maybe even especially among certain people in the fifties and sixties in in uh, among African American in the African American community, particularly the Black Power movement. Yes, and there were critics of that. Remind us of that controversy, because I want to get to the, I, the question. How connected is Invisible Man with Juneteenth? Yeah, um, the controversy arises out of the fact that um, Invisible Man, the protagonist, the hero of, of the novel, is somebody that take, it takes an, an awful long time to realize he's being exploited by everybody he meets. And a good number of those people are black people. Um, and it's certainly not a racial thing, even though uh, racism is, is, is pervasive in the novel. Uh, we find, and, and what Ellison is trying to communicate in this book, is that this is not a racial thing. It is a human thing. It is part of the human condition. And that is to say that we are invisible to one another, that we project our worst fears and insecurities and anxieties upon the things that are different to us, males towards females, whites towards blacks, uh, Americans towards foreigners, you name it, all the ways in which we allow arbitrary uh, distinctions, uh, distinctions and superficial characteristics to um, uh, uh, interfere with our authentically engaging with one another and especially seeing one another as fellow human beings and in this country as fellow citizens. Um, and so uh, in, in that novel, there is a black power character and his name is Ross. And uh, for members of the black power movement in the late 60s in particular, uh, when it uh, came about, right? The book Black Power comes out uh, in 1967, published by Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture, and a political scientist named Charles Hamilton. Um, they start seeing Ellison as um, uh, kind of a naive uh, defender of the American way and the American system and, and, and equality and not giving credence to um, blackness, giving credence to uh, the black power movement and getting, giving credence to a way of understanding the world where whites in, in some form or fashion are irredeemably white, which is to say that they will never see black people or other racial minorities 
as fellow citizens, as fellow, as fellow human beings. And therefore, as a result of that, Blacks have to uh, um, uh, uh, cultivate solidarity and oneness. Um, and, um, and therefore, they didn't see that, that Ralph Ellison was giving enough credence uh, and support for that way of thinking about how Black American citizens should engage a country that had discriminated against them so long. Now, to your question, is there a connection between uh, Invisible Man and Juneteenth? Yeah, because I'm wondering, 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 did that criticism of Ellison move him in any way from his argument in Invisible Man toward a different view, or did it in some ways strengthen his view? I think it bolstered his view. He became more convinced that he understood how Black Americans did contribute to America. There wouldn't be the America that we know, at least in terms of its virtues, whether our, our economic prosperity, our social development, our political process. He doesn't think any of that would have happened, but for the contributions that Blacks made. They didn't make those by themselves, but for him, it was much more symbiotic, whereas many people today think it's this monolithic white structure over and against um, uh, 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 the uh, racial uh, victims. Ellison said that grants way too much power to the myth of, of white supremacy. And in fact, he riffs on this in the very first chapter of Invisible Man, which is the prologue to the 25 formal chapters, where he taught he calls the power company monopolated light and power. But he gives the lie to that name by immediately showing you how Invisible Man is using all this electricity to power his uh, apartment, which is in a whites only apartment, even though Invisible Man is a black man. They don't know he's living in there. The power company knows two things. Electricity is going into Harlem or this liminal area, uh, uh, Harlem in New York, uh, but they don't know who's using it. And so this character, Invisible Man, is delighting himself in stealing, if you will, all this power from so-called monopolated light and power. That's just one of the many ways Ellison showed that Blacks did have agency, did have initiative, were able to fashion a life for themselves that was beyond simply being the victims of this, as I say, so-called monolithically oppressive white supremacist uh, majority. And so what happens is, as he's writing this, uh, uh, this sequel, or it's not really a sequel, but this follow-up novel to Invisible Man, whereas I said earlier, Invisible Man is about the search for identity. What becomes Juneteenth, or the, the, fuller, uh, the more full expression, three days before the shooting, is uh, the theme of the evasion of identity. Little Bliss, who becomes this, um, who's clearly a biracial child, but can pass for white, he wants to evade that complex upbringing uh, and, and his genesis, right? His very being is the result of a union between a black and, and, and between a black and a white person, uh, white persons. Um, Ellison is trying to turn the mirror to the United States and show how mixed we all are. And that's a good thing uh, that if you're white, guess what? You're part black and vice versa. And so he didn't give one inch to uh, the, the critics who represented the black power school of thought. He said, you need to have a better understanding of your own history. And it's a history that goes beyond simply enslavement and racial segregation. When he's writing this, this follow-up, what's his purpose? Because I'm struck by a, 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 a wonderful essay of Ellison's uh, called something like The Function of the Novel in Democracy. Yeah. And he talks there about the importance of writers. And contrary to a lot of Europeans who think, 
America has no great writers or writers are insignificant public figures compared to great novelists in Europe. Ellison argues, in fact, novelists have a, a, a tremendous responsibility and possibility in America in particular because of the nature of the American regime. And I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about um, Ellison's understanding of his role as a novelist and how we might see that in either Invisible Man and or um, Juneteenth? Yeah, Ellison, um, he says words to this effect in his acceptance speech when he is awarded the National Book Award. He's both surprised uh, and impressed by the fact that, that his first effort at writing a novel um, wins one of these uh, incredible awards. Uh, and he says precisely what you what you just um, mentioned that that novelists, especially in the United States, have a responsibility to uh, civil society, and that there are things that novelists can do that, for example, politicians cannot. Um, politicians, of course, have to persuade, and they don't get anything accomplished unless they can marshal consent, majority consent behind certain policies and 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 uh, objectives. Um, and presumably for the common good. Uh, novelists don't have to ask anybody's permission of anything. They don't have to gain any consent. But that said, they aren't operating in a vacuum. One of the grand difficulties, he said, of writing Invisible Man is so many of the different characters, depending on where they were in the country, um, speak in dialect. And he said, I'm going to say things or use certain expressions that I'm not even sure all Black people will be able to understand, let alone white people. But one thing that motivated him, if you can believe it, when he was at Tuskegee Institute, the few years that he was there, um, this fairly uh, prestigious um, college in the South that was established by Booker T. Washington, uh, Ellison read uh, The Wasteland, this abstruse modernist poem by T.S. Eliot that had footnotes. When was the last time you, well, A, when was the last time you read a poem? And B, when was it the last time you read a right. had footnotes? <laughs> exactly. Some of the footnotes weren't in English. They were in Greek. So T.S. Eliot didn't care. He said, if I've written enough here in this poem to intrigue you, um, you can go do your homework and look up the stuff that you aren't immediately aware of. And Ellison took that chance. He rolled that dice when he uh, produced Invisible Man, which has certain characters writing in dial uh, or speaking in dialect and using certain phrases that may not be readily apparent to the reader. Um, but he, uh, as, as uh, his literary executor, John Callahan put it, he crossed the narrative color line by writing as a black author to a multiracial audience. He, he was writing to blacks, whites, and everybody in between. And so his purpose was uh, essentially, as I put it in my first edited book on Ellison, was to produce what he called a raft of hope and of course, that's a deliberate uh, reference to the raft that Jim, the escaped slave, uh, and Huck Finn were taking uh, in the novel Huckleberry Finn. He thought Twain was trying to teach the country. He was exercising a responsibility to democracy, to the American Republic, in getting people to take seriously these innocent sayings and actions of a little white boy and a grown black man who was an enslaved man, he was making enslavement in America's past central to our self-understanding. And Ellison took the baton from Twain uh, to tell that story in his own way. Ellison didn't think that Twain solved everything or said it perfectly, but he recognized the greatness of that novel 
Uh, and it was a novel, of course, that was written also in dialect. Uh, in certain parts, you got to read out loud to figure out what on earth Twain or the, the characters are saying. Um, Ellison uh, said, yeah, I'll, I'll engage uh, uh, not with any old authors, and in fact, any old particular Black authors. I'm going to engage with the greats. He read Twain, he read Conrad, he read Hemingway and Faulkner, he read Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, um, and he said, okay, I'm going to do battle with these guys. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell that part of the elephant that I understand best, uh, and it's a portion of America that he had not seen anybody else write about it from his particular perspective as a black man, but trying to tell people both black and not black about the human condition. It's fascinating. That that helps me understand why Ellison admired Twain so much, that he saw yeah. he saw a novelist speaking in the vernacular to the people, but trying to teach them something, rise above simple popular opinion, public opinion, to, to educate public opinion. Right. He, he once said that I, I, when I write my short stories and when I write my fiction, I, I pretend that Governor Wallace or the governor of Mississippi, he, I pretend that there is a, a white supremacist segregationist looking over my shoulder. Uh, in other words, if this person has a, a modicum of, of humility, uh, and honesty, I might even be able to 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 teach that guy a thing or two. Um, Ellison, uh, you know, here's here's a, a great complaint that he have of someone who influenced his craft, and that was Hemingway. And I'm not a Hemingway scholar, so I'm just going to take Ellison at face value here. But El what Ellison learned from Hemingway was how to write, but he did not learn what to write because he found the moral content of Hemingway. Uh, insufficient or deficient in a way that he didn't find it uh, deficient in Faulkner, for example, and especially in Twain. Hemingway wasn't completely honest about America because he refused to tackle race. Oh, fascinating. So Ellison thought his particular calling as a, and responsibility as a novelist was to teach Americans about race and help them see themselves in, in this mixture of black and white. Yes. That was really what he thought the core of America. Yeah, and, 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 and the best way that I can understand this is that Ellison wasn't writing about race simply because he was a member of a racial minority. He was writing about race because he said, how can you honestly tell the truth about this country and ignore <laughs> the role that race has played? If you were a Martian who knew English, I know that's a, a stretch, but if you were a Martian and knew English and landed in the United States and read decent histories about this country and talk to people. So the history is not just written, but especially because all the history that's written isn't comprehensive and thorough. If you talk to people who knew the old times and knew the old timers, a Martian who knew English could not write a great American novel and not say something about the role that race has perniciously played in this country's development. And yet, despite his his uh, understandable focus on race or the, the, the problem of race in America as an American author, um, you, the, the title of your uh, collection, Raft of Hope, yes. Ellison somehow remains hopeful. He remains somehow hopeful that American principles, American history, can. there's a resource there for Americans to overcome the problem of race, at least as they've inherited it. Why is Ellison hopeful? He's hopeful for a number of reasons. Um, one of the principal, uh, principal ones is uh, what you just mentioned in terms of American principle. 
it, even though a good number of them, just to focus on one, Thomas Jefferson, he was a slaveholder, but astonishingly enough, he didn't make race a critical uh, um, supporting factor for the American Revolution, for America's political development. The key to that was our humanity. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and then he goes on to say that to secure these rights, the Declaration says this, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Race isn't mentioned anywhere there. Whites understood that, and Blacks certainly did, and seized on it. And it was key, not just in the Declaration, but the Constitution and state constitutions like Massachusetts, where slaves petitioned on the basis of what all white men said, right? All men are born free and equal, or something to that effect is in the Bill of Rights of Massachusetts. Um, uh, slaves between 1781 and 1783 not only sued for their own emancipation, but courts eventually said by 1783, slavery is abolished as an institution in our state on the basis of two things. Notice the principles that white people wrote down that weren't racially based, but also the initiative taken by what? The lowest of the low. Black, a black slaved, uh, enslaved woman, Mumbet, also known as Elizabeth Freeman, and a black enslaved man, Quack Walker. They read or heard what whites had said about the structures and about the, about the institutions and principles of their state and said, that applies to me. That's our history, not just um, legitimate political institutions, not just the grand, noble, aspirational statements of the Declaration, the self-evident truths that all men are created equal, most important one, but also the resource found in free human beings, white and black, who worked, struggled, and lobbied to get our practice in greater alignment with our principles. So the resources are both flesh and blood and in these words on paper that are not mere words, they're actually, uh, we believe, and we hold them to be self-evidently true. And Ellison was hopeful because he thought those principles and the struggle to, to realize those principles, he thought that those were a real part of the American mind, the American character. He really thought they did exist, even in white people. Yes. <laughs> even in white people who weren't acting according to those principles. Not even entirely, in, yes. Yeah, and or even in black people who didn't fully uh, understand or at least um, believe in the truth of those being acted upon. He, yet he wanted to teach all of them, is that my understanding? White yeah. and black? The reality of these things? Yeah, the reality of these things and that they are really the basis of our only hope for living truly e pluribus unum, out of many one. We talk so much about diversity today as if difference automatically produced this glorious harmony. And if you check around the world, usually difference causes friction, conflict, tension. Um, it requires, again, both principle and flesh and blood human beings to marshal uh, and harness the virtues that can come from difference. Diversity doesn't immediately produce harmony. More often than not, it produces cacophony. It produces noise and worst off, it produces um, conflict and violence. 
America somehow, and we've had a violent past to be sure, but America for Ellison somehow pointed the way to a more harmonious future when we get people who try and struggle to live up to uh, their highest potential as it's laid out in our founding documents. It's fascinating given his, his hopefulness um, you say that the theme of, of Juneteenth, this uh, follow-up to Invisible Man, is evasion of identity. Correct. Help us understand the connection between that theme of evasion of identity and Ellison's hopefulness. When he's writing this, and he's writing this, of course, in the decades that followed the 1952 uh, publication of Invisible Man, um, he's writing it as the, the, what I call the modern civil rights movement is about to gain steam. In 1952, we don't know who Martin Luther King is. We don't know who Ralph Abernathy is. We don't know who Diane Nash is. Uh, we don't know any of these famous figures. Uh, the Brown v. Board of Education uh, case doesn't get handed down till 1954, the Civil Rights Act, 64, the Voting Rights Act, 65. All of these things were just on the verge of seeing. And Ellison um, is, is beginning to see, especially the power of the, the Black church as being this pivotal force for social and political change. Uh, and so his hopefulness, um, as he's trying to spell it out in a novel dedicated, as he puts it, to the theme of the evasion of identity, the hopefulness is that we can recognize the ways in which we're not being honest about who we really are. That's the evading part. We're not being honest that if we're white people, guess what? You're partly black, both in terms of your uh, uh, your, your, your genetics, uh, but especially in terms of culture, in terms of political, social, and economic progress. The best essay to read on this, and Ashbrook, among other places, has, has put this online, is a 1970 Time Magazine essay uh, that Ellison wrote called What America Would Be Like Without Blacks. He actually titled it The Fantasy of a Blackless America, and Time Magazine didn't like that, uh, more direct title, but uh, the wise guy that Ellison was, he took their title and used his twice in the first paragraph, talking about <laughs> the, the fantasy of a blacklist America. In other words, he's like, for us to think that our problem would be solved simply by shipping black people elsewhere, he says, you don't realize how essential the black contribution was to the development of this country. And Ellison isn't unique in saying that. He's not the first one. Uh, du Bois famously uh, talks about this in Souls of Black Folk. Carter G. Woodson, uh, uh, the professor who created what at the time was known as Negro History Week, which what we now call African-American History Month, he talked about it. Frederick Douglass talked about it. So this is a, an abiding uh, theme or message among great black leading intellectuals of our history that uh, Blacks haven't been this kind of insular, uh, separate, um, internally uh, coherent, but it, you know, uh, not intersecting at all with the greater white society around them. Ellison said that that is a myth, that this country has always been intertwined and intersecting, uh, even when we were enslaving, even when we were segregating, the races were mixing in a number of ways. The, the, with the theme of evasion of identity and the rise of this uh, um, remarkable character to becoming a race-baiting New England senator. Yeah. Um, it's just really incredible. Um, it, it's a book, as you say, put together by his literary executor. And a lot of people have wondered this. And I know it's just speculation, but I want to ask an Ellison scholar. Sure. Um, why wasn't he able to finish the book? 
It was because of the, the power of Invisible Man and the follow-up to it, I think everybody wants to know why he wasn't able to. There's an over time, and I've been thinking about this for a long time. And so what these are my conclusions as of now. <laughs> it's 2022, and I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, a number of things. He took about five to six years to write Invisible Man. Um, he published it with Random House. At first was he had the rights under a different publisher, and then random he transferred those to a uh, random house. Random House had uh, a few very good editors, and they actually, if you thought, if you think Invisible Man is long, it's like 580-something pages now in the typical paperback version. Um, if you think it's long, it was actually longer. Yeah, there are chapters, full chunks that were, were cut out of the novel, and that was done under the uh, counsel of the editors. And so um, suffice it to say, uh, all of the words of Invisible Man are Ellison's but uh, the editors helped him shape it into one coherent story. With what became Juneteenth or the bigger monster known as Three Days Before the Shooting, um, he didn't have those editors. Uh, so couple that, and so he didn't have taskmasters who could um, really say to him, no, 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 look, you, you, know, you promised that this would be done by X date. We really got to wrap this up. Uh, it did not help that computers popped onto the scene. Ellison was always fascinated with technology. Um, he was an amateur photographer, uh, and he had reel-to-reel. -reel, and when he was writing, uh, we'll just call it Juneteenth for now, when he was writing Juneteenth, he actually spoke the narrative. And he would play it back to himself. He was listening with his ear, and, and we actually have recordings of him laughing at his own uh, you know, the, 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 the wiles and ways of his characters. And so unfortunately, with the introduction of computer, what happens? Instead of just tapping something out on a crude typewriter, now he can type and he can revise and he can do different iterations at the touch of a key. And so he actually suffered the opposite of writer's block. This whole time, the novel wasn't being produced because he was stuck it was the opposite. He was telling not one, but it turns out three strands of an interlocking story that unfortunately led him to go on uh, various rabbit trails, shall we say. And um, that undid him. That made it uh, unlikely that that thing was ever going to get finished. Uh, it turned out that he published certain portions um, uh, that a good number of them are what constitute the novel that Callahan and Fanny brought to the surface in 1999, what I call Juneteenth. Uh, and what I would recommend, honestly, if people are wanting to tackle his posthumously published novels, do you read the, the central portion published as, a, uh, as Juneteenth or do you read Three Days Before the Shooting? Three Days Before the Shooting is really a scholar's work. It is a compendium of the various stories. Uh, it's really for the Ellison nerd. Um, Juneteenth is for someone who wants a story that has a beginning, middle, and end. It is much more political because it involves a senator and an attempted assassination. It is much more political than Invisible Man is. Invisible Man is a political novel, but it's uh, one that uh, the lessons are implied. Uh, whereas in um, Juneteenth, that's a novel that, that places um, a political violence front and center. Uh, one other thing that prevented the, the publication was the fact that when he's writing this novel, we have 
real-time assassinations that take place. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Bobby Kennedy. And Ellison, um, these gave him some pause in terms of trying to produce a novel that isn't just going to be tragic, it's going to be comedic. And he liked to combine tragedy and comedy. And that slowed him down. An original manuscript that he had in Massachusetts at a retreat up there, it burned in a fire. And so he had no other copy. And so he had to reproduce from scratch, um, a, a, if not a fully formed story, one that was well on its way uh, to becoming the novel that he originally intended. And so it's this combination of factors that prevented it from being published in his life. And he died in 1994. You've spent time studying him, obviously. For our listeners, why should they read Ralph Ellison? The short answer is, do you want to learn about your country? Um, when I am asked, good grief, you're this guy who's spent most of your academic career and even your career as an undergrad and graduate student studying Lincoln and the founding. What on earth turned you on to Ralph Ellison? And what turned, on, turned me on to Ralph Ellison is that Ellison was a student of his country in the same way that Lincoln was a student of this country. And so while Ralph Ellison is not a political theorist, what he learned from other uh, literary figures, um, again, like Twain, like Faulkner, even guys like Hemingway, uh, but Stephen Crane as well, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, the list goes on. Um, he learned that these were literary approaches to the human condition, to um, what, what, uh, how man deals with freedom, well, both well and poorly. And so you, if you want to learn about the human condition, but more specifically, especially if you're an American, if you want to learn about your country, um, I think his novels, uh, both Invisible Man and Juneteenth, are trustworthy in this way, that they tell us a more capacious, they render a more capacious, thorough, comprehensive, uh, uh, they, they give a, a capacious account of our history in a way that you won't find simply in your garden variety textbook. These are not histories per se, but they tell us truths, even though they're lies, right? This is fiction after all, but they tell us truths, profound truths about our country in a way that um, may be easier to, to, to understand and gather precisely because they are stories uh, than simply reading, uh, I don't know, the Federalist Papers or a, a, a civics textbook. Fascinating. Um, what a great recommendation. I want to recommend to everybody um, not only Ralph Ellison's books, Invisible Man and Juneteenth, but also if you want to follow up uh, Lucas's book, Raft of Hope, as a, as a helpful guide and in, uh, into a deeper study of Ralph Ellison. Lucas Morrell, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate you having me on here, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. 
You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.